0: Last week, we started a new series called, What's in it for me? It's an interesting question we ask ourselves. Sometimes we ask it kind of differently. I know with my kids, when I ask them, they're really good. I won't badmouth them here, but uh, they're very good. But whenever I ask them to do something, often the question comes up, why? Why should I do that? And that's another way of just asking the same question of, what's in it for me? And I know we get older and we kind of start not verbalizing that we may not say it if some opportunity comes our way we may not go Well, what's in it for me but we may think it it's part of our condition part of our heart to look out for number one something in us always asks the question well why should i do that what's in it for me some of you may be asking that here today you came here somebody might have brought you here and you're not even sure what you're doing here on church and you're asking what's in it for me why am i here on this sunday what i want us to unpack today is this other idea that comes from this question and the idea of what's in it for me this other question for us is that it really depends on our perspective of life and things that are going on around us so if i have a lot if I have plenty what's in it for me looks a little bit different than when i have very little and what's interesting on that it's easier to see what other people should do with the things they have so when I ask the question, what's in it for me, I'm thinking about myself, I'm thinking about my context, I'm thinking about all the things that are going around me. But when I see somebody else who may have a little bit more or something a little bit better, it's so much easier for me to have my point of view say, man, if I just have that much, man, would I have really helped the world? If I was just like that, or if I just had just a little bit more, then I wouldn't have to worry about what's in it for me. Then I could be more generous Then I can give out more to this life. It's always easier to see what other people should do compared to what we should do. Because, I mean, we would never have enough, right? We don't have as much time. We don't have as much resources. But that person, that, that person has so many things. Man, if I had that, whew, would I change the world? And it's so much easier to see things from a different perspective when you're looking at other people's possessions and not your own. It's always easier to judge something when you have a different point of view, when you have a different vantage point at a situation. I remember uh, f- my friend and I, for many years, would go skiing at least once a year or once every other year. We'd go, we'd go on a big ski trip, and we'd go to Fernie or Panorama or Sunshine. We'd go somewhere. You now we're decent skiers, you know, nothing to brag about, but you know, we do black diamonds, no big deal. Um, so we'd go out and we'd try to find some big jumps because we like doing the jumps. And, uh, and a lot of times, especially if you're new to the hill, you wouldn't just take a jump. You kind of scout it out. You go first. So one of us would take the turns. We'd go down. We'd kind of go or take a little, little leap off of it and go, okay, go faster, go slower, be careful, that kind of thing. And we were in Fernie one year. And uh, we were skiing and there was like a big valley down, like just pretty big drop. But what's cool about it, just at the end of it, it just shot right up. And we saw that people were taking jumps off it. And we thought, okay, this looks awesome. I mean, but we can't really tell. From our point of view, we can't really tell what's it really like. So what? my friend said, okay, I'll go first. I'll go slower. And I'll kind of hop up there. And I'll yell out directions to you. Perfect. Away he went. He's on the other side. He's waving. Go, go. There's nobody there. Go. So I lean into it. And, you know, I start doing going side to side a little bit. I don't go too fast. And I hear, fast, fast like, all right, man, man, maybe I have to gain all my speed to get up to that thing. Maybe I just, it looks daunting to go just straight, but I'm going to do it. He's yelling fast. All right, so I just lean in. I bend down and just psst, away I go. And I shoot up this thing. And the last thing I hear just as I come off is my friend going, uh-oh. <laughs> Garage sailed everywhere, stuff laying all over the place. I'm collecting myself. Thankfully, nothing's broken but very painful, and I'm like, why were you yelling fast if it's this big of a drop-off? He says, I wasn't yelling fast. I was yelling not so fast. I mean, slower would have been nicer, but all right. (laughs) We'll take that. Our point of view determines how we live and determines what we do. We all have a context. We all have a, a way of seeing the world around us. And what's interesting to me is that what I said earlier is that when we see other people live with what they have, we predetermine what they should do before ourselves, we ask the question, what's in it for me? What's interesting to me being as a person who studies the Bible and studies God and, and been, this has been a big part of my life is that God has the same kind of, it seems to me, God has the same vantage point to us compared to other people. He seems to have a different way of looking at our resources, our, our context, and our life. And he seems to tell us a story and say, join me in this way of living. And it's hard because we don't always see what's over the edge. We don't always see where it's going. And we ask the question, well, can I really stretch myself and do that? Because if I do that, I don't know what, how it's going to end up. So I want to first ask the question, well, why? What's in it for me? And then maybe if it's safe, maybe if I gain something out of it, maybe if I... If I Earn something out of it, maybe prestige, maybe people notice, maybe I'll make money out of it, then sure, I'll jump in. And there's this story that I want us to kind of talk about today that Jesus teaches. And before we jump into the story, the context of it is Jesus is teaching all these great illustrations and parables, and he's kind of explaining to people what God is like what salvation is about, what does it look like to live in our life. And he, like in Luke 15, the chapter before, we're going to jump to Luke 16, but in the chapter before this, Jesus is talking about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal the lost son. He's talking about these things and saying this is what God is like. God pursues us and loves us and he's constantly after us. And he's kind of just explaining all these things to the people that are listening around him. And what was interesting in that context was that a lot of the religious people, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, they would get the prime seats. They would kind of come in and get the front seats because they're important and everybody else would kind of be around them. And so he's teaching all this stuff about this is who God is like. And everybody's kind of nodding because it's kind of nice to hear that God is very loving and he cares for us, but it's probably jarring a little bit for people. And he gets into this really interesting passage in Luke 16 and it's on its own. It's super confusing and this is why it's so important to read the whole thing Because if we just take that passage on its own and you'll see why in a little bit, it would seem like Jesus is teaching something really weird here. And what Jesus is so good at doing is he takes unlikely people, unlikely heroes, and makes a really pointed point. (laughs) He makes a very jarring point to people. He turns it on them. And so in Luke 16 verse 1, you can follow along with me on uh, PowerPoint or you can access version, and we're on there. You go to more events circle Drive will pop up and you can follow along with all the notes and all the messages on your smartphone and it won't look like you're playing games you'll be very spiritual okay so jesus uh 60 uh, luke 16 uh, verse 1 jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions so i think what jesus is doing is he's taught about god he sees all these rich wealthy Uh, religious leaders they kind of have the prime seats and he starts with this and i think people would just begin to tune in because money has always mattered to people money always matters there's always been those of us that have much those of us have very little and those of us who waste it that's has always been reality of life so i think when he begins with this and he says there's a rich man they're like "Yep, okay i get it that's kind of like me maybe he's talking about me i want to listen to this and he makes this point, there's a manager who's accused of wasting his possessions. So the, the rich man, in verse 2, so he called him in and asked him, what is this, is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. He's saying, I found out that you're irresponsible, you're dishonest, and you're taking all this stuff from me and you can't, you can't be part of this anymore i'm not interested in you leading anything in my with my investments in my wealth in my money so you know tie down like finish off the books conclude all that so i can get it all so i know who owes me what finish that off i'll likely pay you for that part but you're done i'm getting rid of you like i can't trust you you're wasting my money so the manager verse 3 said to himself what shall i do now my master has taken away my job I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So this guy knows himself. He's like, I, I'm weak. There's no way I can do this grunt work. In fact, there's probably a lot of labor work I can do that's, that's available. There's usually lots of those jobs. But I, like, I've had prestige. I worked for this rich man. There's no way I can go back to labor work. Like I'm not, I'm not, too, I'm not strong enough to do that. And also, I'm, I'm ashamed. what's interesting here is that what drives us is often scarcity when we have very little it begins to drive us and begins to make us think about what do i do it amplifies things so much differently when we have a lot doesn't it i mean you can get quite dull when you have a lot you can kind of like well i don't need anything so i'll do my thing and see if i can accumulate more so what we see here is the manager has a little bit of time to think he's starting to process this stuff he's trying to say Okay, i can't do that i can't do this what am i going to do so he has a little bit of time and he has a little bit of opportunity because he has to tie down the books he has to finish stuff off before he gives it to his to his uh to his boss there's a little bit of pressure and so he has a little bit of opportunity a bit of time an opportunity and a moment to do something so he says i know what i'll do he thinks this through he says verse four i know what i'll do when i lose my job here and and like i'll do this so people can welcome me into their houses so he's going to use this opportunity to do something so people will open doors for him. So maybe he can get another job. So he, this, this bad manager, calls in uh, each one of his master's debtors, and he asks them first, how much do you owe my master? The first guy says, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The, ma- uh, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. So right off the bat, this guy's being bad again. He's cutting this guy's bill right down in half. And you can imagine how, like, like, how people would feel about this. And you can imagine how you would feel. I mean, if, if my bank called me and said, hey, I'm going to cut your mortgage in half, I'd be pretty pumped. Like, sweet. Let's do this. What can I do for you? You want to come over? You want to hang out? This is exactly what he's, I don't know if I actually want my bank to come over and hang out. But anyways, I'd be really excited if they cut it in half. And people are feeling this. And so the the manager calls in the second guy and he says, How much do you owe? And he says, A thousand bushels of wheat. And he replied, Okay, uh, take your bill and make it 800. And he's reducing all these debts to create opportunities for himself to get in the door. He's creating all these opportunities so that people could be thankful, they could appreciate him, and they could welcome welcome him in. Now imagine being in the front row if you're the wealthy people and hearing this. And you're hearing Jesus explain all this stuff about. This guy doing these things. So we know already that he's, uh, that he's dishonest. He's going to get fired. And he continues to be dishonest. So you can imagine the rich people in the front, the lawmakers, the, 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 the teachers of the law, they would have been like, this is perfect. He's going to get what's coming to him. Jesus is going to say, this guy's going to hell. Amen. Let's go for lunch. But Jesus is so great at doing this because he turns all of this upside down and jars people completely and he says, okay, in verse 8, first part we read, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And this is super weird. And if you just finish reading this part of the Bible because you do just a couple of verses a day, this would be a really bad example to continue with. Be Like, okay, well, I guess Jesus says, as long as I'm shrewd, I can be dishonest. Open doors for myself. But it's important to notice what Jesus is doing here and to keep going. Jesus is showing that this guy had a bit of time, a little bit of opportunity, and he acted shrewdly. He acted with opportunity and knowledge that he can create space for himself. This dishonesty would have been really weird for people to hear. And the people sitting behind the the teachers of the law, behind the Pharisees, Sadducees, the people that are maybe a little bit more poor, middle class, they're watching how they're going to react to this. They're paying attention to this because they're saying, what is he teaching? What, why is he explaining all of this to us? And so it's important for us to pay attention because what Jesus is doing in the next part here is he's giving us a perspective on God's point of view about resources and money. What Jesus is doing by showing this dishonest manager, he's actually unpacking God's point of view on how we treat resources and money verse eight the second part he says for people of this world this is jesus speaking for people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light now this is kind of a confusing verse on it like this part is kind of confusing on its own and it may not mean a lot to you if you're here and you're visiting and you're not sure who jesus is or who god is we're so thankful you're here i'm thankful you're here Thank you for joining us. We believe we're a great community and we want to be a space for you. But if you believe Jesus is God, if you believe that God is in control of all of life, that God has a plan for you, what Jesus is saying here is that we're really good at creating opportunities for ourselves here in this world, but we see and act and live with a limited point of view. We're not living like people of the light, people who understand the bigger context of what's going on. We find ourselves often trapped in living in the moment and not living into eternity. So people who don't even believe in eternity act more shrewdly and better with the resources they have than people that should ought to know better. Jesus continues, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it, when it is gone, you will be welcomed into internal dwellings. Use what you have in such a way, with such generosity, that when you enter eternity, people will be there because of your generosity. Because of what you did with what you had people will be blessed here's where jesus is getting to here here's the file the meat of it he's finally addressing this god is giving us an understanding of how he views our possessions and our resources and he sees them as a tool as a tool to use for other people as a tool in an act of generosity the question we started with in this series is what's in it for me i mean i need money i want money i want to have more of that a little bigger of that i want another car i want this these are the things that i'm wrestling with what's in it for me god asks a different question how will you use your possessions all the things that god has trusted you with for others And you could make an argument, these, these, well, God didn't give me these things. I worked really hard for these things. I've earned them. Fair enough. But if you believe God is who he is, he says everything you have, the opportunity you had, being born in the right family, in the right country, the right doors opening for you, was always a gift from God. And it was always given for you to use as a tool to help others. A man's true wealth would consist not in what he kept but in what he gave away. Jesus goes on. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Notice the parallels here that Jesus is drawing out. Again, remember his audience, the religious people, the regular people, people that are listening to him. And he's saying, first he starts with a dishonest manager and he says this is really good because he's shrewd. He uses his time and opportunity wisely to create friends. And then he drives to the point to the religious people and saying, are you using your possessions and your time to bless people into eternity? Because whoever is un- untrustworthy With even the little bit will be untrustworthy with much what has been given to you what have you been trusted with and are you trustworthy with it verse 11 so if you if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth who will trust you with true riches what's true riches See again, Jesus is explaining God's perspective on resources and wealth. They are there as a tool for true riches. They will help you flourish and grow. They will help you be generous and it will change you at the core of who you are. We sang earlier, here's my heart, God. That is what Jesus is about. That is what he's calling us into. And how well you're trusted with these true riches. Can you be trusted with, those, with these true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? God's perspective we see here from Jesus is that all of our possessions are a tool that is expected to be used to be generous with other people. And we all have something and sure, we can look and say, well, that somebody else. If I had as much as that person, then for sure I would do all these things. I'd, be, I'd use this as a tool because I'd have so much, but I have so little. And Jesus says, whatever you have has been given to you to bless those around you. That is how you love your neighbor. That is the whole, all the commandments in one. We've all been given something. And how we use what we think is ours will reflect on whose we are. Jesus taught more on this, by the way, than on heaven and hell, than on salvation, than on any other thing. He was always about what has been given to you and how are you blessing others around you. How are you using the gifts that you have to bless your community. How are you being generous in this world? Verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and God. And money. Now, Luke did a lot of research when he's writing this. He's meeting with disciples. He's hearing stories. He's connecting. He's making sure this is all accurate. And what's interesting to me is if I would have wrote this verse, the last part would say you cannot serve both God and Satan. You cannot serve Jesus and the devil. Right? That's how I would have finished that off. And Jesus, knowing us completely, knowing who we are, points out the perspective that the biggest competitor for our heart is money. The biggest competitor for our security, for who we are, what, what's in it for me is money. When you begin to view money the way God does, it changes your heart. When we ask the question, why, what do I get out of this? You either align your heart to money or to God. And you can't have two masters. Living for the dollar will ruin you. Because there's never enough. No matter how much you have or how little you have, there will never be enough if that's what's driving your heart. If that is about if that is at the core of who you are, there will never ever be enough. Now listen carefully. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't work hard, you shouldn't earn money, you shouldn't provide for your family, you shouldn't save. He's saying none of that. He's saying, of course, work hard. Of course use your talents, of course use your gifts, of course help and work and support your family. Of course. But see all of the resources and all of the money and all the things that you gain from this as a blessing and a gift to bless those around you, to love your neighbor, to love your family. He's saying, I know what money can do to your heart, and it can corrupt you and destroy you. How we use our money illustrates who our master is. It shows everyone around us who owns us and who and what controls our heart. And then Luke, who's writing this, concludes in the end, and this is a great part here, and he says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. A couple of things. When we read Pharisees, especially if you've grown up in church or you read the Bible, we always kind of, well, we tend to see them as villains in our lives. We see them as the bad guys because they're always, they're always antagonizing Jesus. They're always after him. They're always questioning him. And so it's easy to see them as these bad dudes. But reality is they were the people that were trying to follow God to the best of their understanding. They were trying to obey the law to the best as they understood the law given to them. They were us. They were the church people. So whenever you're like, ah, those Pharisees, because I catch myself doing that too. Remember, that's you if you're a church person. If you're a visitor, that's not you. But if you're a church person, that's you. That's the people that are sneering. I love that word. I don't don't know what, like I'm trying to visualize how they sneered. Maybe just boo Jesus. I don't know. But they heard and they're sneering Jesus and he, he says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others but god knows your heart what people value highly is detestable in god's sight is not that the whole same thing that we talked about earlier it's so easy to spend somebody else's money it's so easy to pick that rich celebrity or person and go man if i had that oh, would i be generous my heart my heart would be awesome then i'd be all about helping everybody And Jesus says, you justify that. You justify how to save your money and how to spend it, but God knows your heart. And he knows he has a master. I'm so good at talking myself out of generosity. But God knows my heart. I want to suggest that sometimes we are good at talking ourselves out of generosity and God knows who or what owns us. We see this through Jesus' teaching throughout all the things that he taught. And one of the primary principles that we really need to connect with here today is that generosity is not a financial issue. It has nothing to do with your finances. Generosity is a heart issue. The question what's in it for me is a heart question and generosity has everything to do with my heart and everything to do with who owns my heart and you know who generous do you want to know who is generous it's not poor people it's not rich people generous people are generous your economic status does not reflect your generosity. Your heart does. I remember uh, when I was just married, we, had a, we were in college and we had an opportunity to go on a missions trip to Ukraine. And it was kind of a great opportunity. I spoke the language so I could be translator. Um, and also it was just a need to go back to my country and see what it was like since the collapse of the Soviet Union. I hadn't returned uh, back to Ukraine at that point. So it was a great opportunity for me to see what the country is like. And I was just, just married, so it was a great opportunity for my wife to see why I'm so weird. Um, and so we went to Ukraine, and uh, it was just come, kind of coming out of the 90s. I think it was 2000 we went, 2001, I, one of those years we went. And it was just kind of coming out of the 90s, which was a really horrible time for all of the countries. that kind of split off. And uh, we saw a lot of poverty. We met people that had nothing like nothing it's even hard to like imagine what it's like to have somebody to know somebody that that wants to welcome you and they have nothing what was interesting about those meetings though is that when we came in to see them they pooled with their neighbors and they found things and they treated us to feasts banquets Generosity is not an economic status thing. It's a heart condition. People that welcomed us had nothing, but they gave everything to us. Now, we all have a little bit of something, a little bit of resources, and we all have a little bit of time. And this is where the shrewd manager story connects. He had a little bit of opportunity a little bit of resource a little bit of time and he did something with it and we all have a little bit of opportunity a little bit of time and a little bit of resources and what will we do with it how much are we are we willing to turn this time and these resources to help our hearts change and to be generous with our community to help others to see our possessions as God sees them, to have his vantage point, to see his perspective on things and say, "This, all of this is a tool for you to bless others. If money becomes your master, the master of your heart, you'll be a slave and nothing will ever satisfy you. But if you use your money as a tool to help others, you become free like you could never have imagined you'll still have to work hard you'll still have to save you'll still have to provide for your family but you will not be shackled to the dollar because in the reality is that none of us in the end of time whatever that time we have some have a little bit longer some of us have a little bit shorter none of us at the end of time in that room when we're breathing our last breath will say oh man I wish I just renovated that extra room or just bought that extra car. Oh, if I just had that, then I could die in peace. A basement, man. needs used to be renovated. All of us, in the end of time, will want more time. And we'll look at the legacy we leave. And the legacy we leave in this world as people of light. The legacy we leave into eternity is how generous we were with the tool that was given to us by God. Reality is something will own our heart. But if we begin to have the vision that God has of our resources, we begin to change in a powerful way. We begin to change our heart and become a heart after God's own heart. Whenever I read the first part of the Bible or the second part of the First Testament or Second Testament, sometimes we call the Old Testament or the New Testament, that thread is interwoven through the whole thing and it's all about our heart. God is constantly calling us for the heart. Change your heart. See the world differently. Care for the alien amongst you. Love your enemies. Care for the widow, for the orphan, Be merciful act justly all those laws that we talked about last week 613 of them were all made so that we could care for other people and that our heart can be transformed and god knows god knows that his chief competitor to him is money possessions wealth what jesus is inviting us into is a revolution. It's not about nice people that shake hands and maybe give a check here or there, although those are all good things. He's calling us into a new humanity, a new way to live, a revolution that will change and transform this kingdom that aligns you with the kingdom of eternity, and not a kingdom of the dollar. Jesus is again drawing in this uh, in this passage but being shrewd, the idea that find value in God's economy, a value that helps you flourish, helps you say, that's enough, I have enough, a value that helps you see other people as God's image bearers and allows you to bless others, allows you to care for people. Because again, at the end of time, We won't want want to be more of a consumer and have more resources, but we'll want more time and we'll want to leave a good legacy. So that's a question to ask ourselves. I mean, don't yell it out. Just ask in your heart. But who's your master? What runs your life? And are you happy about it? Here's the thing about being shrewd is that whatever amount of time we have and whatever amount of resources we have, we will always run out of time before we run out of our resources because we're shrewd. We are. So begin to think like people of the light, people of the eternity, and if you're new with us and you're not sure like like how how do i even take this i don't even know if jesus is real i just wanted you to encourage you to consider that what drives you in life what are your pursuits and i want to challenge you and say your heart is meant to flourish and it can only do that when it becomes generous and it begins to care for people around you and when you begin to love others like christ loved us so what's in it for me? Well, eternally speaking, I would say everything. Everything. At the end of the service at information desk, we're going to have some sign-up for volunteering and, give it, and giving your time to help out at the kickoff. It's an opportunity we have to be good hosts, to bless our neighbors and love them. I encourage you to sign up. It's a great way to get involved, and it's a party. It's a lot of fun. But as you go home tonight, consider who your master is. What's driving you? What are you actually after in this life? Just join me in prayer. God, we thank you for how you bless us. We thank you for the resources you constantly pour out on us. We thank you for how generous you are with us. God, help us to be generous. Help us to have your heart and your perspective on life. Help us to see the world through your eyes. And help us to use the things you have given us to bless others. Thank you, God, for your love. Be with us as we go from here. Guide us and teach us moment by moment. We pray this in your name. Amen. Before you go, if there's something that's touched your heart and you want to speak to somebody, we're going to have a team up front. Please take a moment to come up, pray with somebody or talk to them. Please take the time to go to the information desk and see how you can volunteer. Thank you for joining us. We're finishing a little bit early, so if you have kids, just hang out, grab some coffee. Don't rush to the KCS quite yet. Go in peace.